0: Jones, Australia's leading force.
1: Well, good evening, I'm Alan Jones, and thank you for being with us. A tremendous response last night to the John Howard interview. Viewers writing to me, remembering the Howard line, wasn't it a good line? One person, one vote, one law, one sovereignty, one goal, one hope. Well, in the 24 hours since then, Things have changed, the truth has emerged. Under draft changes to the Labor Party's election platform, a Labor government will pursue a treaty with Indigenous Australians. Peter Dutton grilled the government yesterday in question time on whether the voice was the trigger for a treaty. An unpublished draft of Labor's platform says, and they've got their national conference in August, as I told you last night, the platform says, quote, Labor will take steps to implement all three elements of the Uluru Statement from the Heart in this term of government. Well, just today we learned that the Prime Minister's political interest in Indigenous Australia dates back to at least 1986. As a young activist, he signed an open letter calling for reparation, land rights and sovereignty to be granted to Aboriginal people in recognition of the effects of quote-unquote invasion. James Morrow, in fact, reminds us that the letter was published on April 18, 1986 and read in part, quote, we believe that the granting of land rights and appropriate compensation is of fundamental importance as we approach the bicentennial of the invasion of Aboriginal land. Anthony Albanese's words. The letter referred to, quote, the illegal invasion of Aboriginal land and called for, this is Albanese way back in the 80s, called for, quote, recognition of Aboriginal sovereignty, land rights and compensation for lands lost and for social and cultural disruption. So why are we surprised? Lydia Thorpe warned us that she wouldn't vote for The Voice because she wanted a treaty and she wanted compensation. Remember, I raised this with John Howard last night. Here is part of that interview where the former prime minister delivers a clear an explicit demolition of the notion of a treaty. Listen to this. Well, he says, uh, Prime Minister Albanese, he says the voice proposal is something that could fit onto, quote, his words, a single A4 page. But if I could go back to the deceit, it is deceitful, is it not, when in fact this Uluru Statement from the Heart is 25 pages and it calls for the voice to have officers, and I quote, on an appropriate site within the parliamentary circle in Canberra, that would be quote, supported by a sufficient and guaranteed budget with access to its own secretariat, experts and lawyers. I mean, John Howard, why do you think to use your words, there is an unwillingness to roll up your sleeves and explain what is involved?
2: Well, Alan, um, it's as plain as the proverbial pike staff that this government supports the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And that's got three components. It's got the voice, as yet to be explained. It's got treaty-making process, and I'll come back to that in a moment, and it's got truth-telling. Now, the idea that a sovereign nation makes a treaty with part of itself is preposterous. Treaties are made between sovereign states, nations. They're not made between a sovereign state and part of that nation. The Commonwealth of Australia came into being in 1901. It doesn't make treaties with the State of New South Wales. New South Wales' separate sovereignty disappeared, subject to the Constitution, in 1901. And the idea is preposterous that you make a treaty with part of yourself. And as for truth-filling, I don't quite know what that means, but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, nor do we, John. There is not he wonderful? Former Prime Minister so articulate and eloquent. But there is another unarguable reason why in this referendum we vote no. On the one hand, we've got a race-based change to the constitution. One group of Australians elevated above others. And then as John Howard has said, the preposterous notion of a treaty. Some weeks ago, you might remember, I cited the 14th Amendment of the US Constitution and Justice John Harlan Marshall, arguing way back in the 1890s, and I quote him, our constitution, he said, is colour blind and it neither knows nor tolerates classes amongst citizens. He said, the law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his colour, unquote. That must remain the text for our nation. Well, the stuff's hotting up re Brittany Higgins, Bruce Learman and importantly, the ACT DPP, Shane Drumgold. Peter Dutton must insist on the urgent release of the Sofranoff Report. Justice in the ACT is on a slippery slope. If Sofronoff, a King's counsel, finds the DPP was knowingly involved in presenting a false affidavit to the ACT Supreme Court for the purpose of withholding information from the Lehman Defence Team, then this would be seen as a perversion of justice. That information withheld from Bruce Lehman's lawyers may have assisted them in formulating Lehman's defence. Janet Albrechtson, who's followed all this brilliantly, reminds the ACT Chief Minister Andrew Barr that he should start consulting sections of the ACT Criminal Code. Under Section 7031, a person commits perjury if they make a sworn statement in a legal proceeding that is false. But as Janet Albrechtson points out, it becomes aggravated perjury under section 702 if a person makes a false statement in a legal proceeding with the intention of procuring a person's conviction for an offence, unquote. Well, as Janet says, if the DPP drumgold, quote, is found to have nullingly lied to try to keep police investigation material from a defendant, who face jail if found guilty of rape, it enters a different realm, says Jan- Janet, it enters a different realm of gravity." Unquote. Now remember, it's clear that Higgins and the boyfriend and a whole host of hangers-on were intent on using the Higgins allegations to bury the Morrison government. While ever the ACT government refuses to release the Sofronoff inquiry report, only one conclusion can be drawn, they've got something to hide. Drumgold clearly thought that by calling the inquiry, he'd gather some liberal scalps. Now the man accused may be, the man doing the accusing may now be the accused. This is a grubby affair. And why is the Attorney General Dreyfus, a federal Attorney General, failing to answer questions as to how Higgins received a reported $3 million? It's our money. We're entitled to know. And while we don't know, We can only assume that the Albanese government also has something to hide. Peter Dutton, go after them. There are 195 countries in the world today and there's the United Nations. How impotent must the world be when one nation, Russia, and one leader, Putin, can destroy a country, its history, its architecture, its infrastructure, and murder its civilians and not a finger is raised against him? 194 versus one and one wins. Then you go to Myanmar, formerly Burma, population 54 million. At the end of British rule, the then Burma was the second richest country in Southeast Asia. It's now one of the poorest. 26% of the population live in poverty. Aung San Suu Kyi is a 78 year old Nobel Prize winner. Her party in the 2020 election, the National League of Democracy, won a majority of seats and votes. 86% of the seats in the assembly. In February, 2021, The military claimed the results were illegitimate and launched a coup. They annulled the results of the 2020 election, promising to hold new elections this year. That won't happen. So the ousted civilian leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, has been in military detention ever since, facing 33 years in jail on trumped up charges. But the headlines today say, Myanmar leader Suu Kyi pardoned. That's rubbish. She's been pardoned on five of 19 convictions her sentence reduced by six years. Simply put, she's still in prison. This is just a symbolic gesture by the mongrel Myanmar military mafia. Elections as I said were scheduled for this month, they won't be held because if they were free and fair, Suu Kyi would win again. But she's in jail or in house arrest, same thing, and the world stands by and does nothing. I spoke to John Howard, as you heard last night, about the brutal acquisition of Calvary Hospital in the ACT. In fact, they are in the process of destroying the hospital. The Melbourne Catholic Archbishop, Peter Comensale, has accused the ACT government of forcibly acquiring Calvary Hospital because its Catholic ethos was, quote, inconvenient. And questioned, Comensale questioned whether this unprecedented decision on July three. Ramming legislation through the Legislative Assembly to compulsory acquire the facility was, quote, motivated by disapproval of Calvary Hospital's Catholic ethos and mission, unquote. I should point out that the health and hospital system in the ACT is in disarray. In fact, most of Calvary's 1800 staff are refugees from the Canberra Hospital. In 2018, the Canberra Hospital run by the Canberra Health Service and the government almost lost its accreditation because it failed to meet 33 core criteria. Two of these criteria were considered extreme risk, six high risk and 17 of the issues were related to governance. And here we've got a tin pot government ripping up a contract that was renewed in 2010. And you ask, where does the rule of law fit in? I see that a Labor-dominated Senate committee has rejected a bid to punish wayward Governors-General. Now, I'm not gonna get into the pros and cons of the former Governor-General, Peter Hollingworth, but I do find it extraordinary that as Governor-General from 2001 to 2003, he becomes entitled to a pension. How much? 375,000 a year. Now, that's what I call a good gig if you can get it. Talking about good gigs, by the way, look, if you want a night to remember, head off to the Opera House to see Bernadette Robinson in what I regard as one of the most outstanding one-woman performances you will see anywhere in the world. She's an Australian. She's been internationally acclaimed. You'll love it. She assumes the persona of various divas, Edith Piaf, Billie Holiday, and others. She tells their story and then ends when she transforms herself into the remarkable operatic soprano Maria Callas. This is a woman with an unbelievable voice. It's gold medal stuff. To our Melbourne viewers, she'll be at the Arts Centre from August 24. You must see it. But she's here at the Opera House in Sydney until August 24. The internationally acclaimed Bernadette Robinson at the Playhouse Theatre. And finally, look, I'm not an ABC watcher, but Juanita Phillips has been reading the ABC News since 2003. I'm not sure she's ever received an award But in my view, she's the best in the business. She's the only reason I watch the ABC because I watch the news. She's the best in the business. She says she thinks it's the right time to make the next big step. Good on her. And talking about taking big steps, the brilliant Melbourne Storm Rugby League fullback, Ryan Pappenhuizen will play up to 40 minutes in the Queensland Cup this weekend, returning from an appalling knee injury. Think about this. It'll be the young man's first game in 384 days. It takes real personal courage and discipline to respond to such disappointment. Good luck to him. And a trivial pursuit question, how long is 20 centimetres? I mean, to those of us who are older, I'll tell you, on the old scale, it's about eight inches. Now, it's the world record for the size of a hailstone. In Italy, where they had a heat wave firstly, now they've had hailstorms, and two hailstones in Northern Italy were almost 20 centimetres. Climate researchers say there's been a 30% rise in the number of hailstorms in Italy from 2010 to 2021 as compared with the previous decade. So we'll blame it on climate change, won't we? Blame the heat wave on climate change. Blame the snow in South Africa on climate change. You've got an aching tooth, blame it on climate change. One day we'll wake up to the madness, won't we? Carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. It's the source of all plant life. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. Well, Parliament is sitting in Canberra. You wonder though whether anything is raised or discussed about significant issues facing Australia. I'll keep repeating that Bowen is a dangerous advocate of a destructive energy policy which will cost the economy, it'll cost business profitability, it'll jeopardise our international competitiveness and yes, it'll cost jobs, may send businesses broke. Bowen won't appear on this program. He wouldn't be able to cop the heat. It's worth repeating what Net Zero Australia have said in their report. As the title suggests, they are in favour of Net Zero, which, in my opinion, is an illusion. But even they have said, and I quote, you've heard me and I'll repeat it many times, climate policy remains in the grip of an intelligentsia that lacks the wisdom to recognise the boundaries of their own ignorance, unquote. Now, as I've said, With the government blundering on with an energy policy that will destroy the national economy, Bowen is a metaphor of those who can't, and I quote, recognise the boundaries of their own ignorance. Well, some eminent people are seeing the light. Tony Blair, now Sir Tony Blair, British Prime Minister of the UK for 10 years, has established the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. It's got 750 staff in 40 countries. It prides itself on saying 100 of its staff are currently, quote unquote, embedded in governments around the world and not in the back office. I don't know where they are here, perhaps someone knows. But the Tony Blair Institute has embarked on an audacious new project, the future of Britain. Now, there are some who say if Starmer is to win the election in Britain, Tony Blair will actually run the government. Well, this future of Britain, it's being said of Starmer, that he basically is going to defer to Tony Blair, who's 70, and as I said, that Tony Blair will be running the country. Now Blair spoke last year of, quote, this is significant, the gaping hole in the governing of Britain where new ideas should be, unquote. Well, is this a new idea? Tony Blair has entered the climate change debate with mounting public concern about the rising cost of this net zero push, that is abolish coal and gas, the nonsense about converting everything gas to electric, new homes won't be connected to gas. Tony Blair has warned about imposing even higher costs on consumers. Now, did you check your electricity bill? My peak power costs have gone up by 11%. I got them in the other day. The shoulder cost, that's between the peak and off, up by 30%, but the off peak cost has gone up by 39.9%. Well, Tony Blair is warning of, quote, even higher costs on consumers, unquote, as a result of this net zero nonsense. And Tony Blair, former Labor Prime Minister, has warned against asking the public to do, quote, a huge amount to tackle climate change. And he's saying that Britain's unilateral policies have no real impact in the light of China's rising carbon dioxide emissions. Are you listening, you arrogant dope, Chris Bowen? Tony Blair recently said, don't ask us to do a huge amount when, frankly, whatever we do in Britain is not going to really impact climate change," unquote. I've said it repeatedly, and now Tony Blair is saying it, that Britain's unilateral decarbonisation targets make no sense in the absence of the world's major economies adopting equally binding caps. And he's warned, a you listening, arrogant Bowen, that Britain's net zero plans are dangerously expensive and will result in painful reductions in living standards for all but the richest. He says the net zero nonsense for us, that means abandon coal and gas, trust renewables, ban certain motor vehicles, change your appliances away from gas, we're being swamped with this rubbish, and so is Britain. Sir Tony Blair warns that these policies threaten Britain with economic decline, social instability, and the eventual failure of the decarbonisation effort. Tony Blair talks about extremely costly policies that are both unaffordable and unattractive. Well, as Net Zero Watch says of Blair's intervention, it's hopeful that Blair's pragmatic approach, quote, will open the door for a fresh debate that for too long has been seriously unbalanced, irrationally alarmist and depressingly intolerant, unquote. And that's us on energy policy, seriously unbalanced, irrationally alarmist and depressingly intolerant. If our economy is to be saved, Bennett must, uh, Bowen must go and his ideological energy baggage should go with him. Well, it's to pig in the United States where of course there are continued attempts by the Justice Department to harass Donald Trump and those around him, yet they seem to have no impact on the polls Donald Trump now faces additional charges over his handling of classified documents and he's been accused of trying to delete surveillance footage at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. So six weeks after he was indicted in Miami on 37 charges, (laughs) this quite frankly is laughable, but it does demonstrate how frightened they are of Trump becoming president again because he would take none of this nonsense And that would mean China and Russia and everybody else. Anyway, 37 charges. This is in relation, remember, Peggy and I talked about it last week, so-called sensitive documents, which allegedly were taken from the White House after he left office. Now, Mr. Trump has been hit with an additional count of, quote willful retention of national defense information and two new obstruction charges. Let's bring in Peggy here because, Peggy, there have been developments in the last 24 hours. Donald Trump has now been indicted on four more charges, re-alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. This is the former president's third indictment in a matter of months, and the new charges include conspiracy, don't you love it, to obstruct an official proceeding Mr. Trump's described the indictments as un-American witch hunts. Now, the indictments seek to allege that Mr. Trump conspired to defraud the US, America, that is, by preventing Congress from certifying Joe Biden's victory and depriving voters of their right to a fair election. Peggy, what do you make of all of this?
3: (sighs) Well, Alan, thanks for having me on. And I feel like we have the same discussion every week. It's another indictment, another um, way they're trying to go after Donald Trump. And this one today, I'm not minimizing it because it is very serious and it's unprecedented that we see a former president of the United States be indicted now twice on federal charges, not to mention um, the state charges that he's brought up on. But The the interesting thing always is the very things that they accuse him of is the things that they're guilty of. And what are the what are they, in essence, accusing him of with regard to January 6th? It's election interference. They say that he wanted to interfere with the election results in 2020. Well, that was several years ago, and look at the interesting timing of this. As Donald Trump becomes Joe Biden's top political rival, all of a sudden they have this speedy rush to what they call justice to do what? interfere with the election of 2024. And so they're doing the very thing that they're accusing him of. And people, frankly, I think on both sides of the political aisle are getting a little tired of this. This indictment had nothing new in it. And so it just proves it's an ongoing political witch hunt. It's unprecedented in our history and not in a good way.
1: That's an outstanding point that you've made there. Uh, It's worth repeating. What Peggy just said was the charge against Trump is that he interfered or sought to interfere with the election result in 2020, yet all of these charges and indictments are seeking to interfere with the result in 2024. Outstanding point. Peggy, reports say that US officials have testified, whoever they are, that Donald Trump pressured them based on widespread voting fraud. And the US Special Counselist, Jack Smith, has said that the Capitol riot was quote, an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy fueled by Mr. Trump's lies. And Mr. Trump's been ordered to make an initial appearance in a federal court tomorrow, Thursday. Now, bring us up to date on that, if you would, Peggy.
3: Well, that will likely happen later this week. And we know that this will continue. We actually see barricades going up in Georgia. So we expect that an indictment will perhaps come out of there as well. But it's they it, it will stop at no lengths to bring him to what they say is justice. But interestingly enough, since I said there are no new charges here, what they're trying to do is prove that there was some sort of intent, that it was the intent to defraud the American people. But what they can't prove is if Donald Trump truly believed this, which I believe that he did, as well as along a lot of his voters, they believe that the election was stolen. And so how can they prove intent on something that's so vague? And so the timing of this going into the election, the fact that it's unprecedented, that it's never happened, it seems like this is a really gray, murky area that they're not going to be able to prove. But The pain is in the point of the process and delaying him and trying to tie him up in court and keeping him off the campaign trail. So they may succeed with that. I don't know that they're gonna succeed to keep him out of the Oval Office again, which is their true intent.
1: Yeah, but Peggy, just supposing, which is the case, Donald Trump has many times said that he believes the election was stolen from him. He said many times he believes it was voter fraud. Where then does the concept of free speech and the American constitution come into all of this. It's up to the voter then to decide whether Donald Trump has been talking rubbish or nonsense and therefore we don't want a bar of him to be president again. The public will decide this, the voter surely.
3: Absolutely. And in fact, it was free speech that was indicted today and they will stop at nothing. The left really sees that the end justifies the means. And so the end to them is to put Donald Trump behind bars, keep him out of the Oval Office and whatever they have to do to get to that point is justified. And so they're really trying to make a case here where there really isn't one. And I think they're going to have a hard time proving in a court of law this is a criminal case that Donald Trump truly Truly intended to defraud the American people. In fact, I think it's going to backfire on them because look at the January 6th proceedings. Donald Trump was never able to make a statement call a witness, defend himself. And so if they open this Pandora's box, all of a sudden Donald Trump is going to be able to call his witnesses. He's gonna ask Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol Police to come testify as to why they didn't give the extra security that he had asked for with the National Guards. And so this could backfire in the way that all of these things have backfired with Donald Trump continuing to rise in the polls the more they throw at him.
1: Do you believe that when he does appear in any court of law, that that court will be fair and objective?
3: Well, I think if you look at the voting record of Washington DC, I think there was maybe 5% of the electorate who voted for Donald Trump in the last election. So they know that there's no chance he's gonna get a fair trial in DC. But again, to our earlier point, That's not the point. They don't want him to have a fair trial. They want him to go to jail. They want to keep him out of the Oval Office and they don't care about free speech. They don't care about the American voter. The end justifies the means.
1: Well, now the maintenance worker uh, at Mar-a-Lago, Carlos de Oliveira has been charged and so has Trump's valet, Walt Norta. I mean, you just shake your head here, don't you?
3: Well, again, they can't have it both ways. Look at all the indictments that have come out and all the accusations swirling around Hunter Biden. And what does the White House constantly say? Well, just because Hunter Biden's accused of these things doesn't mean that uh, Joe Biden has anything to do with it. So they're doing the exact opposite with Donald Trump. They're going after his personal aide. They're going after a maintenance worker at Mar-a-Lago. And it's not going to work because the same standard that they want applied to Hunter and Joe Biden, they're not applying to Donald Trump and to the people surrounding him. Everybody sees it, Republicans and Democrats alike. And there's a lot of people that obviously agree with the mainstream media in wanting to um, make sure that Donald Trump is guilty of everything. But there's a lot of common sense Democrats and a lot of independents who don't like the way that the government is being weaponized in two tiers of justice toward Donald Trump, his supporters, and toward the Biden family to protect and cover for them.
1: Just on that, a final word on the special counsel, Jack Smith. Uh, who's investigating Donald Trump's role in trying to block the certification of Biden's election, which we just talked about. Uh, What's the history and background to Jack Smith vis-a-vis Donald Trump? Aren't these people Trump haters?
3: They are, and in fact, his wife did a documentary, a very glowing documentary about Michelle Obama. Uh, they have a long-standing um, involvement and in donations to the Democrat Party. And Jack Smith is trying to co- try this in the court of public opinion as much as he's trying to co- try it in a court of law. And so that's why he's making these outlandish statements. That's why there's the leaks coming out of his office. That's why we're seeing photos of documentation all over mar lago which is just leading the public to think things that absolutely are not true. And at the same time. We're covering for Joe Biden, who, have we heard anything from his special counsel investigating his documents? You probably don't even know the name Robert Herr, which is the special counsel who's supposed to be investigating Joe Biden. But they're sure slow walking that, and they're sure quick to judge, hang and try Donald Trump.
1: I'll come to that in just a moment. You mentioned Michelle Obama. I've got a few contacts who claim that they're relatively close to the Democratic Party in America. They're telling me that Michelle Obama will be the Democratic candidate for the presidency. Uh, What do you hear? What weight is there on that point?
3: Well, that's been widely speculated. We've heard about Michelle Obama. We've heard Hillary's going to come back. We've even heard Oprah Oprah Winfrey or Meghan Markle. But I think the Democrats are going to have a hard time pushing Joe Biden out of a place that he thinks he rightfully should have. Kamala Harris is right behind him, and the Democrats are going to find a way, I think, to get rid of both of them. But Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are not going to go without a fight. The Democrats made their bed. They may have to lay in it in 2024. Absolutely. And I don't think it'll go well for them, mm-hmm. even if they go up against Donald Trump.
1: Well said, they've made their bed, they've got to line it. Just all of this Hunter Biden. Now against all of this stuff about Donald Trump, there is a whistleblower who led the criminal investigation into Hunter Biden. He's now revealed his identity and he's claiming he was handcuffed, his words, from fully chasing the Hunter Biden case. Peggy, What are the media saying now about Agent X, who turns out to be a special agent, Joseph Ziegler? And hasn't he now revealed himself to US Congress as a 13 year veteran of the internal review service and a lifelong Democrat? And he's the second whistleblower now to allege that the federal investigation into Hunter Biden, which recommended several felonies, was hamstrung. And don't the IRS men, both of them claim, that their investigation on Hunter Biden was blocked, slowed and hindered by authorities tipping off Hunter Biden's legal team about potential searches of storage lockers. What weight do we place on all of this?
3: Well, we place a lot of weight on what these two whistleblowers said. And isn't it interesting and ironic that the Democrats love whistleblowers until they don't? They don't like them when they're blowing the whistle against to Democrats, but they love them if they're going to come out and accuse a Republican or Donald Trump, especially, of something. And so they love them until they don't. These two whistleblowers who are under whistleblower protection with the internal revenue system, they were so credible. I watched um, much of the hearings, and they couldn't even go after them with credible questions because they didn't want either one of them to talk. And to your point, neither one of these are MAGA Republicans. These are lifelong. One's a gay Democrat. He's definitely not a Donald Trump voting Republican. And But they didn't want them even to talk. And so when the when the Congress people on the left had their turn to ask questions, instead they just filibustered. They complained about Donald Trump. They didn't want to hear them talk. And so they've really tried to shut this down. But the claims that these whistleblowers made directly aligned with the suspicious, suspicious activity reports that the House Oversight Committee has been tracking. And they show that tens of millions of dollars have changed hands between foreign governments into the, the Biden family's personal accounts. And in many cha- in many instances, you can chase that directly to changes in policy or action taken by the president or the vice president actually at the time. And so this is harder and harder for them to cover. They didn't want to hear from the whistleblowers, so they completely ignored them, shut them down and talked over them and tried to discredit them, but they did not do a good job. Yeah,
1: I mean, this fellow Ziegler, one of the whistleblowers is a serious 13 year veteran of the Internal Revenue Service. And both whistleblowers are saying that Hunter Biden was paid US $17 million from foreign income streams between 2014 and 2019. So Piggy, which law enforcement authorities are taking this seriously?
3: Well, the House Oversight Committee continues to chase this, and these whistleblowers documented exactly what they had done and what was really telling about what they were talking about was not just the receipts and the money, but it was the process. These are career professionals. They work in the bureaucratic state. They're not supposed to be partisan in either way. They were given this case because they are such outstanding agents, and they described the process that would typically go through and what would usually happen when this type of information was passed along. And the fact that it wasn't, it wasn't followed up on, it was told, they were told to ignore it or dismiss it was really telling. And so the process is the part that we should be able to rely on, that there's a fairness that goes across political lines. And that was their concern, not that we hadn't indicted Joe Biden yet, but that the process, which they are sworn to uphold, was not being adhered to. And in fact, they were being blocked from adhering of the process which they are obligated to
1: follow. Absolutely. Look, just a quick one before you go, DeSantis. Has the DeSantis campaign virtually collapsed before it started? I mean, Donald Trump's got a lead of, what, 25 to 30 percentage points in Iowa, which is the first state to pick a winner, and a similar gap nationally. Didn't DeSantis last week sack 38 members of his staff, a third of his team, and that was the second round of dismissals in a month? And are there significant big money outfits who were supporting DeSantis, big donors, are they deserting him or at least increasingly worried? Is he, do you reckon, a viable candidate, DeSantis?
3: I think the debates will be very telling. He will get a post-debate bump, which is coming in a week or so or he won't, and if he doesn't, he will not be a viable candidate moving forward, but the same case could be made for the other candidates on this stage. It's rumored that Donald Trump will not attend the debate, and in fact, he has said, maybe I'll just watch it and see if any of them do well enough that I wanna pick them for my vice president, but it will be very telling. How can Ron DeSantis shine or not on that stage of his rivals? And especially without Donald Trump on the stage, sucking all the oxygen out of the room, Will Ron DeSantis be able to fill that spot? Or will others like Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, will they step up and really be the front runner? It'll be interesting to watch, especially since we don't anticipate that Donald Trump will be attending this first debate.
1: Good on you. Great stuff, Peggy. Wonderful stuff. Great insights. Thank you for your time. There she is, Peggy Grandy, the former executive assistant you, to Ronald Reagan. Knows the stuff, doesn't she? And we'll talk to her again next week. You might remember I mentioned last night that after the Labor Party federal conference in Brisbane in August, we were told the left of the Labor Party will take charge and I said the concept was laughable. The left are already in charge. Witness the divisive voice that John Howard alluded to last night. But you have to ask where this left-wing obsession on climate change will end. I mentioned earlier the former British Prime Minister Tony Blair warning that we're going to have to be careful that if all this climate change stuff comes into being, the economy will be crippled and businesses and consumers with it. This latest obsession, therefore, led by Daniel Andrews in Victoria, oh, spare me, anyway, seemingly rejected for now by Chris Minns in New South Wales, Chris, I hope so, the ban on gas connections to new homes in Victoria. From January 1 next year, now, you've got to wonder what, in the shallow talent pool, some of these Victorian ministers know about so-called climate change, other than the hysteria that they seem to enjoy. The Victorian Energy Minister, Lily D'Ambrosio says, quote, getting more Victorians on more efficient electricity appliances will save the money on their bills. Unquote. Does this silly person understand where the electricity comes from? This will merely increase the use of coal, if that's the resource they hate, and force consumers onto an already strained electricity grid. It's a recipe for chaos. But the chaotic Andrews government tries to argue that such a move, get rid of gas, will take $1,000 a year off household energy bills. Not a single sentence to explain where this $1,000 conclusion comes from. Bit like the Commonwealth Games, isn't it? It's gonna cost us $7 billion or $8 billion, but no figures to prove that, just say it. $1,000 will come off your energy bill. But this will apply, this no, no, all got to be, all got to be electricity, no gas from January This will apply to new public and social housing, public buildings like schools, hospitals, and other government buildings, energy from a gas ban, when I should point out that Victoria, if they care to use it, has unlimited gas resources. But under this dictatorial regime, no gas, there will be no choice allowed in new homes. Consumers will be forced Will I be forced out of gas? Can't use gas. The kind of thing you would expect in communist China. No choice. Stack of gas out there, but you can't use it. Now, we've seen all this in the utterly dysfunctional Labour dysfunctional Labor Greens ACT government. Remove gas appliances from homes, schools, hospitals, and offices, allegedly force consumers onto electrical appliances. So, Steve Davies, I mean, where does the electricity come from, all you dopes? But as Steve Davies, the CEO of the Australian Pipelines and Gas Association has said, quote, if the ACT government wants to reduce emissions, becoming even more reliant on New South Wales coal-fired generators is a strange way to do it. Now I've said for years, not months, that the demonization of coal and gas is a national economic suicide note. Only last Thursday, The Australian energy market revealed that the cost of generating electricity rose 31% in the three months to June. That'll be fed into your household bill. And it gives you some idea of what your power bill will look like next year. It is impossible for sensible people to make any sense of this. Move consumers onto an already strained coal-based electricity grid when the very same people who are saying you must do that are demonising coal. And those remaining on gas will have to cop, cop escalating network costs. And what do the know Alls say? This will lead to a temporary increase in emissions, meaning we'll have to use coal-fired power. But they've got no answer to rising costs. 80% of Victorian homes are connected to gas, 80%. But Victoria says it wants to reduce emissions, carbon dioxide, by 75 to 80% by 2035, and to net zero by 2045. What did the former British Prime Minister Tony Blair say? In layman's language, it wouldn't matter what we did. Even if we thought carbon dioxide was a problem, which it isn't, because China is not buying this nonsense. They're building two coal-fired power stations every week. The electricity grid in Australia is dominated by brown coal. Common sense would tell you, if you switch from gas to electricity, emissions will go up. But Victoria, like everyone else, wants to close down the coal-fired power stations. How on earth Will our energy needs be met? By hoping the wind blows and the sun shines. The greatest stupidity is that you've got this energy program director from the Grattan Institute, Tony Wood, admitting that the network problem is a real problem. That is where we're all gonna get our electricity from, the network, and that government and companies will have to come up with a solution, quote, because either the businesses will go broke or the consumers who won't convert will be paying a lot of money for gas. <laughs> you can't believe this, can you? But these are the duds that we elect into government. There are currently two million households in Victoria connected to mains gas. They're expected to transition to electricity, presumably coming from coal, that Labor governments hate. So the electricity grid is dominated by brown coal. The consumer's got to get out of gas and onto electricity provided by the brown coal, which production will be closed down. Sealy International is an air conditioning company. Their boss, John Sealy, has the guts to be the only person talking sense when he said this dangerous ideology is not only blind to logic and common sense, it defies trends in Europe and North America. Unquote. The trouble is, there are Labour governments all over mainland Australia, all singing from the net zero song sheet. Where is an opposition? with the guts to get into the public place and nail this rubbish for what it is, an economic suicide note. Look, I can't remember the number of times I've spoken about this infamous case of Julian Assange, an Australian imprisoned in the UK's harshest prison, awaiting extradition to the United States. If extradited, he faces a 175 year sentence for allegedly exposing war crimes. Put simply, not only has Julian Assange committed no crime, the facts involved in the case don't support a crime. As his very talented and distinguished Australian lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, argues, what is it that Julian Assange would be pleading to? In Australia, WikiLeaks won the most outstanding contribution to journalism award in 2011 for the very same publications for which Julian Assange sits in a rotten prison and faces 175 years in jail. Anthony Albanese, when he was not Prime Minister, told a Labor caucus meeting in February last year that, quote, enough is enough. And he, quote, can't see what's served by keeping Mr Assange incarcerated, unquote. Well, the health of Julian Assange continues to deteriorate. He's 50 years of age, recovering from a stroke, and he's been in prison for 14 years. The United States has never made a case, nor has anyone, that the information published by Julian Assange put anyone's life in danger. And remember, all the major US news outlets republished what WikiLeaks had published without any charges being laid against them. And then there's Joe Biden. In 2021, at a Summit for Democracy to showcase the importance of democracy to the world, President Biden said America would set up a fund, quote, to help protect investigative journalists against nuisance lawsuits designed to prevent them from doing their work. Unquote. Last year, one of our finest journalists, now in Washington, Adam Crichton wrote, and I quote, the Assange case has sifted out those who genuinely believe individuals have rights from those who think government is a tool to destroy your political enemies. For now, he wrote, Assange's fate appears sealed by inertia, hypocrisy, and timidity, unquote. Well, Prime Minister Albanese was right when he said enough is enough. But does that only apply when you're in opposition? What happens when you get to government? Julian Assange has been in jail for 14 years without any conviction. He's an Australian publisher, not accused of hacking. He's the first publisher in history anywhere in the world to be charged with espionage. As the Republican Senator Rand Rand Paul said, the founding fathers would have protected WikiLeaks at all costs and it's time we inherit their spirit. Well, Julian Assange didn't hack any US records, nor did he assist Chelsea Manning to hack the US service. She already had access to the documents in question. Chelsea Manning has already taken full responsibility for obtaining the documents. All Julian Assange and WikiLeaks did was passively receive information. Then, as journalists do, protected Manning as a source and published the cables, as did the New York Times, The Guardian and other media organisations. Chelsea Manning has said, and I quote, although I stopped sending documents to WikiLeaks, no one associated with WikiLeaks ever pressured me into giving more information. The decisions I made to send documents and information to WikiLeaks were my own decisions and I take full responsibility for my actions. Well, during the trial of Chelsea Manning, it was confirmed that no US personnel were put at risk or harmed due to the publications. Yet this case has been going on for over 10 years. Chelsea Manning was born Bradley Manning, a former United States Army soldier. She was convicted in 2013 of violations of the Espionage Act after leaking material to the publisher WikiLeaks. She was imprisoned from 2010 to 2017, but her sentence was commuted by President Obama. In other words, Chelsea Manning was pardoned, what Australia is merely asking of the Biden administration, is to offer to Julian Assange, what was made available to Chelsea Manning. Now remember the board of the Walkley Awards gave WikiLeaks the prize for the most outstanding contribution to journalism in 2011, and praised it for delivering, quote, an avalanche of inconvenient truths, unquote, during a courageous commitment to journalism. News organisations, including The New York Times, Le Monde, De Spiegel and El Pay, issued a joint letter last November calling on the US government to drop the charges against Assange. Well, the former Foreign Minister Bob Carr was also the Premier of New South Wales for 10 years. Indeed, only Henry Parks served as Premier for longer, but no one in the history of New South Wales has served a longer consecutive term as Premier. Bob Carr has delivered recently a fairly scarifying attack on the failure of Anthony Albanese in this Assange disgrace, and he joins me. Bob Carr, thank you for your time, but I mean, what is the purpose of Julian Assange being locked up in this rotten Belmarsh Belmarsh prison, a single cell with limited ventilation for 23 hours a day? What the hell is the point of it?
0: It's sheer sheer cruelty, Alan, uh, especially when you consider one, as you put it, no lives were lost. Uh, Not only have we got two American sources confirming that, but we've got the Australian Defence Department through information released on freedom of information confirming that was their assessment as well. So no lives lost. Second, he was exposing a war crime, that is the shooting of civilians from an American Apache helicopter, the sort of war crime that we say we're taking seriously when alleged of Australian service people in Afghanistan. But for this war crime, there's been no inquiry by the Americans and no prosecution of anyone. He exposed it, and that's the only reason he's faced this, the extraordinary malevolence that's been directed at him. Just one, one final point, and that is that, as you put it, Chelsea Manning, the American who gifted the material to him, which he published, Chelsea Manning was effectively where it was commuted, effectively pardoned, by the, by the, by the Obama administration. Um, we, we are entitled to say to, to the Americans, we're entitled to say to the Americans, uh, as Australians see it, the Yank has gone free, but you're maliciously pursuing the publisher of the Yank's material, who happens to be an Australian, and he served all this time, it's time to let it drop. Given what we're doing for the Yanks lately, I'm amazed that it wasn't quickly accepted as the legitimate representations of an ally with a very strong case. Uh, Just on that,
1: now, how many times has Anthony Albanese met Joe (laughs) Biden since he became Prime Minister? Almost 10, 8, 7, 8 or 9 occasions. Uh, Is Albanese weak? Why isn't he saying, this is what we've done for you, we're asking this little bit in return?
0: That's all he's got to say. Now, It is extraordinary if faced with passionate advocacy, and I believe that Anthony's sincere about this. I believe that he would indeed want the Australian released. Uh, It'd be extraordinary if he hadn't pitched it in those terms. And pretty bad if the American president, hearing one of your most rusted on allies make this request, just shrugs it off. Now, something's not adding up here. Our representations, I hope, were made with all the force that an Australian Prime Minister is entitled to bring to bear. As I said in that article that appeared in Nine Media, um, you've only got to say as Prime Minister, uh, imagine how a hawk or your old boss, Malcolm Fraser, would have put it, uh, John Howard. John Howard. Um, I'm speaking here, Mr President, for Australia. It's the united position of our political leadership. We want this matter dropped. We want this matter dropped. That's the Australian request.
1: Mm. Does it also, though, the case against Julian Assange undermine the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, which protects freedom of speech and freedom of the press? I mean, I have quoted many times as Jamil Jaffa, who's in charge of the American Amendment Institute at Columbia University, and he said, the charges against Assange rely almost entirely on conduct that investigative journalists engage in every day. He said the indictments are a frontal attack on press freedom. Is Albanese making those points? I mean, I get these excuses, oh, well, uh, we spoke to them but we can't do anything because Hillary Clinton is upset about Julian Assange and some of what was leaked affected Hillary Clinton in her presidential campaign and so on. I mean...
0: Yeah, well, that's, of, course, of course, the rebuttal of that is that he's not being pursued for anything in respect of the 2016 presidential election. No. In which... And by the way, uh, the Democrats had an obligation to protect their email traffic. America's got an obligation overall to see that the secrets of other countries, America's allies for the most part, aren't produced by a Chelsea Manning or a Snowden. I mean, it wasn't the last occasion no. on which someone working in the American security state opened it, I, used the key and unlocked the cupboard and sent America's secrets flying all around the globe. There's been another case only in the last six months of someone in the American militia with access to sensitive material who, who did the same thing. America's got to accept some responsibility for protecting its own secrets against whistleblowers, legitimate or malignant. Mm. But no one could say, no one could say that the great principles of the First Amendment, and if America does one thing well at its best, one thing well, it's not an electoral system, that's chaotic, but it's freedom of expression. America has taken a stand. And allowing diversity of opinion is the great achievement flowing from the First Amendment to its constitution. Mm. And the New York Times used that First Amendment to win its famous case to publish the Pentagon Papers Mm. that released the whole history of America's involvement in Vietnam. The same principles apply with Assange. And I can't believe that an American president if these matters had been put strongly to him, Mm. would have arrogantly overlooked the request of a good ally invoking America's own constitutional arguments. So you've said previously, because I can hear people out there saying,
1: because they've read headlines, we don't like Julian Assange and so on, (coughs) you've said previously it doesn't matter if Julian Assange is an unattractive figure or not, he's ours. Yeah, and that's we sh- right. And we should be protecting him.
0: That's right. In the end, that's the bottom line. An Australian citizen, I speak as a former foreign minister, not all of the citizens apprehended unjustly overseas, I'm not talking about those who are put in jails for drug dealing or whatever. Uh, they've offended the rules of the country they're operating in, they've got to cop the consequences under the laws of those countries. But no one's arguing Assange is a spy. But the Americans have exercised extraterritorial pursuit of him under the Espionage Act mm-hmm. 1917. Now this is the, this is the injustice here. Um, we've, we've got to object. We've got to object to that principle and use all these arguments. I think especially the argument about the Yank going free but the Australians still being pursued. If there's a killer factor around, it's that one. It ought to embarrass any spokesperson for the United States administration, and lead them to say, in view of recent decisions by Australia, decisions I oppose in the same spirit as Paul Keating, about AUKUS, about nuclear bases in Australia, about the B-52 flights, all of which render us a nuclear target. Mm -hmm. In view of that, surely five minutes of consideration, and a decision favouring Australia is all that's required from the Oval Office.
1: Uh, Absolutely, I mean, you've made this point, I've made this point, I mean, (coughs) Albanese as Prime Minister has had several meetings with Biden, I mean, there's the Quad, there's one or two NATO summits, and you've made this to San Diego where they launched AUKUS and where you say Australia will make the largest, and this is a very valid point that you've made, Australia will make the largest transfer of wealth ever made outside Australia, $368 billion, $368,000 million dollars as a subsidy to American naval shipyards. So Bob Carr, isn't that enough for Biden to tell the Clinton loyalists who've got it in for Assange because WikiLeaks involved documents embarrassing to Hillary Clinton, doesn't this extraordinary support of the United States entitle Biden to say and Albanese to demand the end of the
0: pursuit of Assange? Absolutely, reflect on that $368 billion as you put it, the largest transfer of wealth outside this country in our entire history. Um, you, I, I, remember, I remember 18 months ago having a discussion with Greg Sheridan, the foreign editor of The Australian, when the amount for a dozen French submarines being considered was 55 billion. That's it. And I said to Greg, that's, that's only two years ago, at a guess. Uh, Greg, 55 billion, that's an awful lot an awful lot mm. for 12 subs. Mm. Greg said to me, "Oh, Bob, you've got to remember it's over the life of the contract. Mm. Um, but now, now press the fast play button and we're talking not about 55 billion, 55 billion, we're talking about 368 billion for, for very questionable submarine technology a lot of these subs, a lot of the time, are going to be receiving maintenance. And there is a view from the experts, I'm not an expert on this, but there is a view from experts who've worked in the Department of Defence, that our, our defence needs protecting this continent and protecting its sea lanes of communication would be better delivered by the latest off-the-shelf yes. conventional subs.
1: Yes, yes, buy them off the shelf. I mean, 368,000 million. I'm sick of using the word billion, 368, you can't get your head around this, thousand million. Bob Carr, then of course, there's this agreement to host US nuclear submarines on our west coast. I mean, <laughs> this is presumably got something to do with China, then an east coast submarine base plan for Port Kembla. I mean, if Albanese said in opposition that enough is enough, is he now so weak that he can't demand the charges be dropped against Assange? Because that's the only conclusion you can draw.
0: Yeah, there's never been this level of closeness to the Americans, there's never been a financial commitment like this, and it's a very, very questionable one. The argument for conventional subs, a larger number of them with 90% of the capacity of nuclear subs, infinitely cheaper, Um, and some say better able to escape detection, but certainly able to, to defeat any potential rival mm. or competitor mm. or, com- or or, or, uh, or uh, aggressor directing activity at this nation. Mm. The defense strategy uh, for us should have been that 12, or make it 15, conventional subs in the front line, protecting our waterways and the American fighters that we are buying, even an extra squadron of them, mm. plus the missile upgrades and plus the drones, making this continent unbeatable. Mm. But the fact is, and this terrifies some people in defence in Canberra, mm. by, by putting all our eggs, that's 368 yeah. billion into this single platform, mm. as they call it, nuclear subs, we are going to be starving our army, our air force, and when it comes to surface vessels, our navy, of the sort of very expensive high-tech equipment they're looking at getting in the next three decades. Mm. All our eggs in one basket, the big commitment into one defence platform. Yeah, I
1: mean, I agree with that. I mean, Abbott said, didn't he, buy them off the shelf. Turnbull had all sorts of fancy ideas about that. I mean, uh, the guts of this is, I mean, as you said, I think the Yank is free, the Aussie is pursued. and, And you make the point about Albanese, an initial refusal from Biden you 've said is only an invitation to ask a second time
0: in a firmer voice yeah i 've said this from the very start uh, I think i 've alerted people in the uh, in the government I think i 've said now, first time you, you can very likely get a a, a rebuttal, a decline um, a, uh, uh, in a sad tone of voice. no, it just can 't be done if that happens, just regard it as an opportunity to go back and yes, in a, as I said in a in a firmer voice to say, now Mr. President, I raised this with you at our last meeting. Uh, I've now got the support of Peter Dutton, the leader of the opposition. That means Australian politics is united. Australia is telling you this matter has got to be dropped. Australia is making this request. Mr. President, I speak for Australia. Uh, None of us are fond of Assange, but he is an Australian and he's done his time. You've made your point and let's, let's advertise the greatness of your constitution and the First Amendment, which enshrines freedom of speech, even when it makes us uncomfortable.
1: Mm, brilliant. I should say to our, to our viewers, uh, to our viewers uh, Bob Carr in a piece he wrote recently, ended the article by saying, quote, if Assange walks out of the gates of Belmarsh prison into the arms of his wife and children, it will show that we, that's Australia, are worth a crumb or two off the table of the Imperium. I mean, that's a Latin expression for the supreme executive power of the United States. We're worth a crumb or two from the United States. But then he says, if it's a van to the airport, (coughs) then making ourselves a more likely target has conferred no standing at all. We're a client state, almost officially. Brilliant stuff, but you and I can talk. Just to finalise this uh, exchange, where are we? Are we still in no man's land?
0: Well, I think all Australians have got to reflect on this. Um, A major, uh, an eye-watering commitment um, in terms of our available defence monies over the next 30 years to a single platform and yes, it is a subsidy to US shipyards and a a high risk we're taking with the capacity to deliver of BAE systems Mm. in, in the UK. This is the, the word to use about AUKUS, Alan, is grandiose. There are a million parts in a nuclear sub. It's the most com- complex piece of technology there is, even more than a moonshot. And we're going, we're relying on a British shipyard with a record of tardiness to deliver the hull, and to the Americans to deliver the technology. The technology. Mm. And we have no skilled labor base ourselves mm. To, service to take command of this process. Now, this, this debate will go on a long time, but just be aware that on this, people should be aware that on this program in 2023, we're opening up these concerns. Absolutely. I fear for the future of my country that many of these concerns will be conferred, confirmed, confirmed as valid in the 2030s, 2040s. yep, yep.
1: I agree with you entirely. And I'll make a final point, I agree with you entirely. How can an Australian be locked up in jail for 14 years without any conviction? An Australian publisher, not accused of hacking, the first publisher in history anywhere in the world to be charged with espionage. How could that happen and a government be impotent in the face of that disgraceful treatment of an Australian citizen? Robert James Carr, thank you very much for your time. You are always welcome. And in the interest of decency and humanity, we have to continue. Thank you, Ellen. Not at great all. It's been a great
0: pleasure. Thank Not you. Not at
1: all. Bob Carr. Well, look, just before we go, and I'm sorry, ha- stay with me. I know this referendum on The Voice is driving people nuts, but it, we can't afford it. It's daily reaching alarming levels of concern. We can't afford to be bored by the discussion. I'll keep it simple on this program. Teela Reid, T-W-L-A Reid, is a lawyer and an academic at the University of Sydney. She's a Uluru dialogue leader, a member of the referendum engagement group, who in January was described by the Prime Minister as part of the next generation of quote, remarkable Indigenous leaders, unquote. Well, I thank James Campbell for reminding us of the thoughts of this Indigenous lawyer, Teela Reid, on how the government should handle Indigenous affairs. James Campbell reminds us that Teela Reid has said "I quote, Racism is synonymous with Australia. Australia wouldn't exist without racism. Racism has nothing to do with the colour of your skin. It has everything to do with power and privilege. There's no point in blackfellas trying to explain our pain to a nation without a soul, unquote. And in response to a proposal on Twitter that Australia Day be moved, Ms. Reid said, quote, How very Aussie is this? Let's ignore history. Find a new meaningless date to celebrate and forget that the blacks Ever declared January 26 a day of mourning. It's always been abolish Australia Day. Changing the date is a cop-out. Unquote. Now remember, the Prime Minister has described this woman as part of the next generation of remarkable Indigenous leaders. Well, Miss Reed is also an advocate for compensation. She wrote in 2020, and my thanks again to James Campbell for reminding us: the struggle for First Nations voice has been 250 years coming, ever since Captain Cook landed uninvited in 1770. The struggle, she says, is, quote, about the fight for land rights, water rights, and the right to save our planet from the colonial structures that have attempted to destroy it, unquote. You're excused for shaking your head. In May, the academic and lawyer, Teela Reid, whom the Prime Minister describes as part of the next generation of remarkable Indigenous leaders, and, of course, she was part of the Uluru Statement from the Heart and all the rest of it. She's right there up to her neck in it. Well, she told the Ethics Centre in Sydney, you know, that there does need to be reparation here. There does need to be compensation. There does need to be these tough, I think, decisions and reparations for what First Nations people have lost. That's, she said, undeniable. In 2020, Ms. Reid argued, we have to understand this concept of the voice is redistributing power and enabling self-determination." Unquote. Well, I'm not going to get as angry as Miss Reid with language seemingly filled with hate. I'll merely make two points. Firstly, she's an Australian and very much entitled to a view. Secondly, I would say it's a view rejected entirely by the overwhelming majority of Australians, and it's therefore yet another reason why Australians will vote no in the referendum. That's it for me tonight and indeed for this week. Don't forget you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow. That's in the morning. Just search Alan Jones. And don't miss Bernadette Robinson at the Opera House. It will be a memorable experience. Thank you for your company. Thank you for listening to ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.